Let you turn, me, turn with me in God's word this evening, first to Psalm 32. We'll be looking at Lord's Day 21, question answer 56 of the Catechism, which deals with the phrase, we confess the forgiveness of sins. Take for the Apostles' Creed as we find it explained in our Catechism. So we'll have an Old Testament and a New Testament reading. Our Old Testament reading will be Psalm 32. This is the Word of God. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Or will, it not stay near, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. There ends a reading from Psalm 32. Turn over to the New Testament, to Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, and we'll read verses 26 through 43. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who are criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. 
And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There runs a reading from God's holy word. Let's turn over to Lord's Day 21. You'll find this in your Forms and Prayers book on page 223. Page 223. We slowed down as we came to Lord's Day 21, looked at each of these three questions and answers now consecutively. We conclude this Lord's Day with question answer 56. We'll read this responsively. Question 56 asks, What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last Sunday the world watched the Super Bowl. Some viewed the commercials as a highlight of the Super Bowl. And over the last couple of years, there's been a commercial about Jesus. And it's had this catchphrase that says this, He gets us. He gets us. It's making an interesting point. You can find us where we are. On Monday, six days ago, I saw a one-minute video of what Christian commercial about Jesus should have been shown. And it showed a picture of well-known Christians who used to live scandalous lifestyles. It had a former witch, former atheist, former jihadist, former KKK member, former drug addict, former gang leader, former drag queen, former transgender, former abortionist, former porn star, former lesbian activist. That's Rosaria Butterfield. And then the next phrase was key in the ad. And it said this, Jesus doesn't just get us, he saves us. Jesus doesn't just get us, he saves us. And then it listed the words that Jesus does. Transforms cleanses, restores, forgives, heals, delivers, redeems, and loves us. And the last phrase quoted in this one-minute commercial of the ad, you can find it on YouTube, millions of views, said this from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Such 
were some of you. Such were some of you. It's the past language of Ephesians. Such were some of you. All of us were by nature. It was powerful. It was a powerful commercial and it made one thing extremely clear. That the grace of God in Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost. There's no category of person beyond the scope of the reach of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. And it's a gracious salvation. And it's a free salvation. It's transforming grace unto eternity. Faith in Jesus Christ, true faith in Jesus Christ today, secures eternal redemption with the Lord. That simply, brothers and sisters, is what we confess this evening from question answer 56 of our catechism, summarizing the Apostles' Creed, summarizing this clear teaching from Scripture. Or as we sometimes sing from Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is wholly covered. Our theme this evening is by faith we confess the forgiveness of sins. By faith, we confess the forgiveness of sins. We'll answer three questions. What is forgiven? How is it forgiven? And why is it forgiven? So first, what is forgiven? The answer to question 56 has a history. Our catechism says, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature which I need to struggle against all my life. He will no longer remember. The old language, he will never hold against me any of my sins. It should not take very long to convince each one of us that we are sinners. That we are sinners. That we are all deserving of hell. A great English evangelist it became very popular over the last decade or two. So it would be a whole lot easier to do evangelism if you preachers just preached on hell a little bit more often. If you made clear to everybody that they're going to hell if, if not, they do not embrace by faith the Lord Jesus Christ and have in the Lord Jesus Christ everything. Day after day after day we transgress the law of God. We fall short of God's standard. We miss the target. This should be horrible news. The worst news. Worse than any possible medical diagnosis you could receive. It's worse than you have cancer, you have two weeks to live. This is, you are a sinner worthy of condemnation. And eternal hell is your future. If it was not for the forgiveness of sins. We confess that God will no longer remember any of my sins. Think about that. No longer. How could God forget? He's God. There's no shadow of turning with him. How could he do this? He knows all things. It's a purposed forgetting of our sins. To use the language of Micah chapter 7, it's casting them into the depths of the sea. Who is a God like ours, pardoning iniquity? Does he not know what we've done? Does he not see the depravity of our hearts? Yes. 
Yes, he will no longer remember any of my sins. What does that mean? Well, it has essentially three references. The first is a historical one. And this is really in light of the the rise of the Roman Catholic teaching on purgatory. Briefly, purgatory is where Christians go after they die to be purged or purified of any remaining sin in them. So Catholics would say purgatory is where sanctification gets finished off. We'd say, no, you're sanctified at death, fully sanctified. God will no longer remember any of my sins. They're cast into the depths of the sea. God, Scripture talks about God putting them behind his back. The psalmist speaks about God remembering them no more. What certainly this does not mean is that God will not remember them or remember them no more up until the point of we die and then he'll punish them a little bit further. That's not what that means. That's not what we confess. That's not Psalm 103. That's not Micah 7. That's not 2 Corinthians 5. That's not 1 John 1 or 1 John 2. He will no longer remember any of my sins. The second reference is in the judgment. Jesus Christ has already stood in my place and in your place. Justification is by faith. We're justified now. Imagine the fact that being justified now means that right now, before the judgment seat of God, you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. You, are as, you will no, never be more righteous than you are right now in justification. What happens then in the future at the end of it all, at the final judgment, is called vindication. What already is the case will be made clear. We will be vindicated. Jesus has stood in our place. And this is why this Lord's Day is not a fearful Lord's Day for the elect. It's a glorious day. The day of judgment is not a day of fear. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are accepted. We are judged righteous. And then the last part of this answer certainly plays a role in our justification. But suffice it to say, we are freely and forever justified because Jesus Christ stood in our place. How do you receive that? Dear friend, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, two glorious things happen. Your sins are forgiven and you're granted the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ forever. That's called justification, forever right before God, holy by grace, freely offered. No hope without it. Jesus finished work. And the third part of God remembering, no longer remembering any of my sins, impacts today. We're sinners. Every single one of us. We've committed horrible sins. Maybe even some sins that nobody knows about. They're they're secret sins. Maybe you, you told one person. Nobody else knows. Maybe we even have in our mind 
sins that we've committed, and we, th- we've comm- we, th- we thought, I'm going to take this to the grave with me. Is that okay? Can we keep our sins secret from believers and still be forgiven by God? Yes. Unless, unless those sins are committed against individuals that we ought to seek forgiveness from. Confession happens before Almighty God, but when we sin against somebody else, we must confess that sin to them as well, as much as we are able. I've pastored people that have committed sins against other people that are now dead. You obviously can't confess that to the person. You leave this to the Lord. God forgives, not because of the greatness, the strength, or the tears we offer when we ask for forgiveness. We're forgiven in Jesus Christ. We're forgiven in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, there's a struggle that many of us have. You confess your sin to Jesus. You leave this seemingly at the foot of the cross, but the next day it's back again. The next day it's back again. Not that you've recommitted it, but that you can't get past it. You continue to focus on it. You still have shame for it. What's happening there spiritually in your heart and life? Well, there's possibly two reasons. The most likely reason is that you probably actually haven't completely given this over to the Lord. You haven't given it over to the Lord. Why would you not give it to the Lord? Because it's humbling. It's humbling, and we're proud. We hold on. When you give it over to the Lord, that's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It's gone. But we have a natural tendency to hold something back. For some reason, we kind of like to keep a closet with some sins in there. God casts us, or calls us to cast all of our cares upon, not some of them. Cast all of your cares. The burden is too heavy for you to bear? Of course it is. You can't bear sin. You can't hold it. It's too weighty for you. It will drag you down eternally if you do not cast it upon the Lord. Cast it upon the Lord and you'll find freedom. True, God-wrought liberation for whatever it is you have done. You give that thing to the Lord completely, totally, unreservedly, and you experience the true liberation of the forgiveness of sins. A possible second reason we might feel something we call shame is that even though we've repented of a particular sin, we're still sorry that we've committed it. Maybe we see the continued consequences of sin. Right? We've done something and you can't take it back. You said something, you can't remove it. You've broken a relationship and it can't be restored. People have moved on. And you see the continued consequences of your sin. We need to give that over to the Lord as well. We can only help that which is in our control. We give this to the Lord. But it also should remind us that sin isn't something to be taken lightly. It's not a joke. It's not funny. 
It drove our Savior to the cross. So that's the first thing that's forgiven. Our actual sins. The things we have thought, said, and done, which were contrary to God's law. We committed sins. Those are sins of commission. And we failed to love our neighbor and failed to love our God. Sins of omission. Both of them are forgiven. We did things we shouldn't, and we didn't do things we should. The second thing which is forgiven is our sinful nature. We are born with a sinful nature. We could, if we want to define what a sinful nature is, we could say something like this. It's our natural inclination in depravity to transgress the law of God. It's a natural inclination. Time and again, it's our sinful inclination in nature. Think about gravity. If I drop this bulletin, boys and girls, what's going to happen? Fell right down. But if I did this a hundred times, how many times? How many times do I have to do this? Where I drop it and it goes right up to the ceiling. Well, I could, I could do it a thousand times. We could be here all week. It's never going to do that. Why? Gravity's pulling it down. It has an inclination to fall down unless something's going to push it up. Our natural inclination it's called a sin nature, is unto sin, unto unrighteousness, the transgressing of God's law. Our sinful nature is a result of the fall. And it's because of this sinful nature that we must fight our whole lives. We will be battle-tested day after day. We will become battle-weary day after day. We will sing in our hearts, trust and obey for there's no other way. And time and again, we'll put on the armor of God and we will grow tired of the fight. Maybe your grandparents have grown tired of the fight. You get to a point in life where you grow older and you've been fighting the fight of faith your whole life. And it's not just because your body is getting weak. Your soul is getting tired. I'm ready to go home to be with the Lord. I'm tired of the fight. It's exhausting. Our sinful nature is forgiven. Wholly, completely. But it's not removed. Forgiven, but not removed. Ever. In our life. When we die, then it's done. But in this life, God humbles us. God humbles us. By reminding us day after day, we need Jesus. Near, still near, Lord, unto thee. We need the Lord. And that old nature, that old man just hangs around. And this is the reason, brothers and sisters, why some Christians who are devout Christians can commit some horrible sins. You ever had that thought? How could so-and-so do that? He must not really be a Christian then. No, maybe he is really a Christian. He gave in to sin. Something which we could all very easily do. And we pray that God will not permit us to fall into sin. How could Peter deny the Lord? How dense could he be? Jesus told him, you're going to deny me. How could he do that? This is why he could do that. Peter was forgiven before he sinned. His sinful nature was not removed. How could King David fall into such great sin? We can think of all the greats of the past. One thing that they all have in common, they're all sinners. They're all sinners. We think of a passage like Romans chapter 7. I thank God for Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 8, 
there might be a few people here that that's their favorite passage in Scripture. It's glorious. It, it is the high point of salvation in Jesus Christ. But Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul's struggle with sin. Why do I keep doing these things? Why is this so difficult? Why am I so weak? Why is my faith so easily tottered? Why is this the case? This is why. Because of our sinful nature. There are dozens of applications of this truth. Be humble. Be patient. Be patient with other people. Do not cast them away. Because God does not. Our sinful nature, which I need to struggle against. Think of, when you see the word struggle there in answer 56, think of a fight. There's an internal fight. It's called the antithesis. It's a war. It's out there. But where it's the hardest, it's in here. We must struggle against it our whole life. And yet it is forgiven. Everything you do, including your sinful nature, Jesus has died for if you believe in him. That's what is forgiven. Second, we see how is it forgiven. The how of forgiveness of sins seems to be pretty easy. Jesus Christ and the cross. Boys and girls learn that at a very young age. What does Jesus do with your sins? He forgives them. He died on the cross for my sins. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, he's a professor there, said this. You and I must never get beyond Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the theme in heaven. It's got to be the theme here below. You never get beyond Jesus Christ and him crucified. You ought never to walk away from church after hearing the preaching of the word. Like, well, another sermon about Jesus. Getting kind of tired of this Jesus preaching. Never. Never. It's the theme of our life. It's the theme in heaven. Let it be the theme of earth. I preached one time at a church and I'd never preached there before. And I preached a sermon focusing on the free grace of Jesus Christ. And an old, older man in the church who, he was kind of one of those ultra-conservative types, I found out. He said, well, pastor, that was pretty heavy on grace. I had no idea what he meant. I think he meant it as a criticism. <laughs> thank you. I said, thank you. <laughs> um, there's no such thing as pretty heavy on grace. There's a way to emphasize an attribute of God, his love, his justice, his wrath. If you only emphasize one thing, right, you, you can have a one-sided God. The grace that God gives to us is because of our sins. It's because of our sins. Leviticus teaches that without blood, there's no atonement. Blood must be shed. There was no blood shed before the fall into sin. Why? Because there was no sin before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Without blood, there is no atonement. The Hebrew word atonement means to cover or to cancel, placate, to offer or receive a sin offering, to propitiate, to make reconciliation. All of those terms, they're all looking at it from a slightly different angle. Jesus did that. He's the atonement for our sins. 
The English word comes from this idea of uniting together two lives. We have received atonement brought together. Jesus is not just a a martyr who died for a noble cause. Rather, he is a redeemer. I'd imagine that the name of the church was chosen purposely. He's the redeemer. It centers on the central work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He redeems. He purchases back. He buys that which is enslaved. He brings to life that which was dead. He's the redeemer. He knew it. The disciples knew it. The Old Testament saints awaited for it. And now we are saved because of it. He's the redeemer. God forgives our sins. Because God ordained before the foundation of the world. That we should be found in Jesus Christ. God ordained this before Adam and Eve fell into sin. This is initiated by God. This is in accord with the nature of God's dealing with humans. If your Bible is open, let's look at a couple different passages here briefly. First, let's look at Revelation chapter 13. It's back in John chapter 1. When John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the worthy lamb. Look at Revelation 13 at verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life who was slain. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must be slain. Here's the call for endurance and faith of the saints. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. The perfect lamb. The spotless lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. We have, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Those first two verses there. We could look at every single chapter in Hebrews to see this theme carried out. He's the great sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amazing, the grace of God. Amazing that in speaking of the cross, Hebrews 12, verse 2, can say the joy that was set before him. Do you enjoy pain? Are there any masochists here who, who just like pain? The pleasure that pain... No, we avoid pain. And if you happen to be one of those interesting people who does, right? It is a disorder. The joy that was set before Jesus Christ 
unto the cross. How could the cross be the joy of Jesus Christ? Because therein, at the cross, at Calvary, you were included and I was included. And the Lord Jesus Christ so loved us that he would go to the cross for our sins, for the glory of God, for the very purpose God gave him. He came to the earth, not for the triumphal entry and people to say, Hosanna, and to praise him. He could have established a kingdom to overthrow the Romans. He could have called down legions of angels, thousands upon thousands. If God could do that with Gideon against the Midian, what could God have done through... But that was not why he came. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We say nearly every week, I confess the forgiveness of sins. We teach our children At a very young age, Jesus forgives you for your, rightfully so. Jesus went to the cross for, but do you know what that cost? And do you know the greatness of the love of Jesus Christ for sinners? We can confess the forgiveness of sins because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 2. The psalmist could write in Psalm 32, we read it this evening, how blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. You know of a greater blessing? That was written hundreds of years before Jesus endured the cross, Psalm 32. How could sins be forgiven in the Old Testament? Boys and girls, how were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saved? How were their sins forgiven? Was it through the blood of bulls and goats? They had to do that. They had to sacrifice. They had to have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They had to let the scapegoat out into the wilderness. They had to do these things. God commanded them. They are saved by faith in the promise of God that he, through the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, that through the seed of the woman would destroy the kingdom of darkness, that he, through the seed of the woman, would forgive to the uttermost, that the head of the serpent would be crushed him and his whole kingdom and his whole purpose that we might be new creations in Jesus Christ Father Abraham had many sons we're not talking about sons of ethnicity not because you are Jewish people but sons by faith in the promise because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ each and every one of our sons sins rather along with our sinful nature is forgiven. The atonement of Jesus Christ was to save the same type of people who nailed Jesus to the cross. You and me. I find it fascinating, and maybe it's only about 90% true, but I've read some reports of those who are involved in that last couple of days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate's wife, for instance. Maybe even Pilate himself was converted later. A soldier who's at the cross who testifies later of faith in Jesus Christ. These glorious stories. Some of them might be a little bit apocryphal. He died to save the types of people that nailed him to the cross. 
How could he say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Because he came to save sinners. What, you think your sin is worse or is less than nailing Jesus to the cross? We sang it already. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? It was I, Lord Jesus. I crucified thee. I crucified thee. A child of God can say with the greatest joy in their hearts, Jesus is the Savior, the whole Savior. Third, why is it forgiven? There are two parts to justification. As my catechism students know, the first part is what's emphasized in question answer 56. That is the forgiveness of sins. But to leave the second part out would also be to only give half the story. Or if it was done purposely, would be to commit serious theological error. We receive not only the forgiveness of sins, praise God for that, but also the righteousness to free us from judgment. Our catechism ends this question by saying, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. You need that. You need that as well. The righteousness of Christ. Think this through a moment. Suppose that Jesus just did the first part. He just forgave us our sins. Where would that leave us? Well, in theory, we'd be in the same place that Adam was. We'd be back at square one. And since we're unable to merit anything before Almighty God, we'd be forever stuck in some type of perpetual state of not accepted by God, not rejected by God, already being foreigners, aliens of God. Something more had to take place. Jesus forgives our sins, but he also gives us the righteousness that we may never come into judgment. So God can really legally say forgiveness and righteousness are fully given. They're imputed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God in him. Not wanting to get too far ahead in our catechism here, but just if you have your catechism open, look at um, Lord's Day 23, question answer 60. I think the greatest of the questions and answers of the catechism, maybe your favorite is question answer one, mine's question answer 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. And then the answer will continue from there, and it brings us down. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of having never kept any of them, of still being inclined toward all evil. All of these things, nevertheless, even though I know I'm guilty and I still feel the guilt that I'm still going to fall, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me. He credits to me. You bring something back to Home Depot, put your credit card back in. Goes right back in your credit card or goes right back in your debit. It's a credit unto you. Well, what does Jesus credit to us? The perfect satisfaction 
righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned or been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. That last part. As if you were as obedient as Christ means you're better off than Adam. You're in a better position than Adam. Now you're in Christ. Impossible to fall out of that grace which Christ has won for us. Your security, brothers and sisters, is not in your strength to be able to hold on. God doesn't throw you a life preserver, and if you just hold on tight enough to the life preserver, God will drag you in. God sovereignly scoops you out of the water and places you in Christ, forever secured. We don't have to live our life fearful that God might not love us tomorrow because of what we've done today. Confess your sin. Deal with sin. Walk in righteousness. But God does not accept you because of what you do. We're accepted in Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say, I believe the forgiveness of sins. Now let's return back to the question of the third point. Why are sins forgiven? Why are sins forgiven? It really comes down to this one phrase in that second paragraph. By his grace. That's why. By his grace. You need something more than by his grace. There's no other possible explanation. We do not deserve it. God in his divine being is not obliged or obligated to give it, though he has ordained it. It's not conditioned upon our receiving it. It's not based on our response for it. We don't have the the hand of a beggar that receives the money. And if we don't say thank you, the giver is going to take it back away. By his grace, the heart of our Savior so loved us that he was willing to take our sins upon himself and to die with a brutal humiliation crucified naked in front of his mother and his friends and the crowds as they mock him. Maybe you've seen a, an artist's rendition, renditioning of, of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, which is a second commandment violation. Anyway, um, and Jesus is always clothed, right? At least he has a loincloth on. He didn't have a loincloth on. The utter shame of, of the cross You don't have to be very old to realize it's shameful to be naked, right? A very young child, you're like, you're going to close the door when when you change your clothes. The shame of the cross, and the shame of the cross ultimately was not the physical pain, suffering, anguish, or nakedness of our Savior. It's this, the greatest weight of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by the Father, that you might be accepted. Our Savior was so full of love, he could go to the cross. For either forgive them, for they know not what they do. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law, because we were unable to. 
you know you confess so much when you confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't just happen automatically or magically. We can confess the forgiveness of sins because God the Father forgives them through the Lord Jesus Christ. God grants and credits to me the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that I may never come into judgment. Brothers and sisters, as we think of the bigger picture here, we are saved by his grace. Salvation, the beginning unto the end, is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ because the God so loved the world. Could God love us? To the uttermost, yes, because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we confess when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we are humbled before your grace that you would love us who were sinners, but even while we were still enemies of you, you've made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. That old, old story of Jesus and his love, may it never, Lord, grow boring to us. But may we ever long to hear it and to sing it, to pray with gratitude for it. We thank you for all that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Apply your word to our hearts and help us to live our lives out of the security we have of being founded in him. We pray, Lord, that you will bless our offering this evening. We thank you that you have been so gracious to us, giving to us our daily bread. We pray that you make make us wise and generous and stewardly in the gifts that you have given. Hear us now, gracious Lord. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.